It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really happy to be here. I, uh, it's been a little while since I was here. And on the one hand, I feel uh, 
I couldn't remember how someone asked me, oh, I saw, I heard you speak here when we were last, and I couldn't exactly remember. On the one hand, it seems quite a long time ago, and on the other hand, it feels entirely normal to be sitting here like it was yesterday. So time has a funny way of collapsing and expanding that way. So anyway, at some point I was here, and now I'm here again. So, uh, And I'm happy to be here again. And... Uh, really excited to think about spending an afternoon talking about loving-kindness practice and uh, the Metta Sutta, which, by the way, I carry with me when I, when I go to teach in different places. There are three or four pieces of paper that I carry with me, and I don't take notes of anything that I've taught anyplace else because I fear it, it, it's all in there somewhere or another and it'll come out in another way or another. But the only things that I actually either bring with me or print out on someone's computer that morning are the, the Metta Sutta and two or three other poems, which if I teach long enough anywhere, I'll think to myself, ah, I wish I'd brought that poem. So I usually have it with me. But uh, the Metta Sutta is really uh, exciting to me because when I first heard it years ago, I thought to myself, it's just one page, as you know, you have it right there. And uh, it gives the injunction in it to wish all beings well, no matter what. It's the most radical kind of instruction. And it does it, when I first read the sutta years ago, I thought, well, this is kind of, uh, it's kind of like the Nike ad. It says, just do it. It, it actually doesn't give you any instructions. What will I do about the people I don't like? What will the people I do with the people who get on my nerves? Uh, I didn't bring it with me, but often carry around a cartoon that I've printed out from the New Yorker of two women sitting. It looks like New York women, but they, you know, they were. It's in the New Yorker, so it looks like a New York woman sitting on a New York bench drinking New York coffees, <laughs> saying, and one is saying to the other. Uh, I've, le- I've left s- specific instructions for my ashes to be finely ground and <laughs> trampled into my children's carpets. So, <laughs> the, the, uh, and I, it so tickles me because I think to myself, to think about it's so bizarre, but to think that you would be so mad about something like your carpets that you would be making plans into the next life for your children. But the the thing of saying love everybody with a whole heart, if we could, we would. It feels much better to do that. But we have we are phenomenal grudge keepers, and it's phenomenally easy to get angry. I thought I'd write a book. I like those kind of nice titles to book to books called something like it's incredibly easy to become angry it's incredibly easy the one false move and something goes off and we will continue to get angry or annoyed or irritated I think all of our lives because we're human beings so I think that the great wisdom is not that we can fix our minds so that anger never arises it does but to fix our minds so that anger arises and there's a space big enough to contain it, or we can make the space big enough to contain it, or the space could be malleable enough to contain it. I was just thinking about that just before we started. I haven't thought about that word for a long time, and I remember reading it decades ago when I first began to practice, and it was some description that said, with practice the mind becomes malleable. And it's such a nice word. It means that things can happen. It means to me, anyway, 
when things are malleable, they're like clay that hasn't been fired into a brittle knit. They're like, if you drop a lump of clay, it doesn't break. It maybe changes its shape a little bit, but you can push it back into shape. And I was thinking about a mind that's malleable. Maybe uh, I, I was thinking about I could start this way or that way. But having said that, and having printed out one of my poems that I always hope to remember in the course of a teaching, I'll read it now. Because, well, I don't have to tell you what it's about. If I had to tell you what it's about, it wouldn't be worth reading. So, <laughs> The poem is by Billy Collins, and it's called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. And this is the poem. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo, that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. You know, I, th I thought about starting with that today. I could have started with the, the, the recent and true report, uh, five days old now, of my very good friend who uh, spent the day with her daughter in California, accompanying her, her younger of two daughters, accompanying her to her first of what's projected to be six or eight chemotherapies for um, a, a, a not-so-wonderful kind of breast cancer that's just been discovered. So she was spending that day with that daughter having the first infusion while 500 miles further south in California, her other daughter was giving birth to her second child. And I thought to myself, how does she do that with one mind in one day? be here with this child and be there with that child? And how do both sisters be there with each other in that day? My friend Sharon, who I expect later on this afternoon, your friend Sharon Salzberg, who lives here and you see her more frequently than I do, my friend Sharon talks about having a mind as wide as the world. And that's what I think what we need. We need a mind as wide as the world. Otherwise, we can't hold our experience. It's too much and it comes too thick and too fast. I remembered the other day that uh, somewhere in the 1960s, I think, there was a musical called Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Remember that? I wonder how frequently we have the feeling, stop the world, don't tell me anything else for today. We have expressions, we have too much on my plate. I think we often have too much on our heart. How to do it? How to have a heart that's malleable, says, okay, I'll do this. Okay, I'll do that. 
I really think the instructions for the Metta Sutta, as Sandra said, are instructions for both wisdom and compassion. And the wisdom and compassion, I think, are inextricably part of one another. That uh, the kind of wisdom that we hope to develop and deepen and cultivate in practice by, by really just looking carefully at our lives moment to moment, experience to experience, somehow that kind of wisdom that we hope will be unshakable wisdom, which manifests itself as compassion for ourselves and everybody else, because that's what we're all doing, is the world is going too fast, we all have too much stuff, not because we have busy lives, just because we have lives. We have lives and stuff is happening all the time. And some of the stuff is great and wonderful. And new babies and new daffodils and new wonder and finally spring and all kinds of things to pick the the heart up and all kinds of things right available. Turn on the news, look at the headline, answer the telephone, someone says, hello, ma, and it doesn't sound exactly right. Or hello, Sylvia, and it doesn't sound exactly right. You know, suddenly you're going to hear a piece of news that's going to be hard to hold. And how do we have a heart that keeps on doing this? We've made a, a, a distinction in Western practice and Theravada practice between mindfulness and metta over the years. We say, I practice mindfulness. Ach, I don't like metta. It gets a, I, I myself would have said at one point, metta gets on my nerves. <laughs> that was actually was the truth. When I first heard my teachers uh, leading a session of metta, everybody here knows what metta is, loving kindness practices. Is that true? Yes. So wishing well for all beings, and it, it is often taught in a formulaic way, which is a very helpful way to teach it. I don't actually think that it means we're supposed to go around all day thinking the formulaic phrases. It's wonderful if you do while you sit on the bus or on the train or walk down the street. But I think what it's really about is having a heart that really feels may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. You know, oh, it was last night. Last night I saw Anne. How many people saw Anne? The play about Anne Richards at Lincoln Center. It's really fabulous. Really tried to see it. It's a, a one-woman play, and it's the the political life, or actually the whole life of Anne Richards recapitulated, and it's great. And the, the the final line when she's summing up her whole philosophy, when she's actually at the time when she's describing what she knows and thinks when she dies, and she says, "Love all your friends and." Love all your relatives and friends as if your life depends on it, because it does. And uh, anyway, the play is also very, very good. But I think that what actually is one of the things that one begins to learn from practicing well-wishing is that the practice of well-wishing, which is the antidote to negativity in the mind, it's the antidote to grudge, it's the antidote to thinking about grinding ashes into your children's carpets in some (laughs) decade to come, is wishing well. It can't be in the same mind. When your mind is full of happiness. You know, I'm very happy that Dalila did that um, 
what apparently is a custom here of greeting one another and talking to one another before we start. Had she not, I'm going to take it home and do it in Spirit Rock, had she not, I would have done what I normally do when I sit down with a group and they're all quiet and waiting for me to say something. I normally say, um, well, we'll do it anyway, but it's the same, you'll see. It's the same and it's not the same. It's just a quiet version of the same. Look around the room. It's a meditation with eyes open. Look around a little bit and find somebody that you don't know that doesn't see you looking at them. <laughs> Pick a person. Just look at them. Then don't let them know. Don't like make eye contact. <laughs> okay, so you know who it is. And now wish for them in your mind, thinking for them. Wish three good things. Maybe I hope you feel good. Um, I hope your life is going well. May this afternoon be good for you. May what's ever worrying you soon stop worrying you. Some good thoughts. Seriously. I won't talk too much so you can seriously wish them. And find another person, a new person that you don't know. And wish them three or four kind thoughts. One last person, find another person. And now close your eyes for just a few moments and wish yourself some kind thoughts. Take a long breath in and out. Feel how your body and mind feels. And then open your eyes. Look around a little bit. I often find when I uh, do that, even briefly, I look around, people look better. (laughs) Seriously, they look more beautiful. Everybody looks amazing. Look, that person has that face, that person has that face. 
you know, it's awesome to look at a room full of people. Everybody's got a face, and it's different from everybody else's face. Ever think about that? It's amazing. It all has to do with what their parents look like and their parents look like. Things get a little spectacular and awesome when the mind is quietened. Don't you think? So I'm very glad that you do that other form of greet people because in the act of greeting people, either externally, as Dalila encouraged people to do to begin with, or internally, when we greet people in warmth, it dissolves whatever um, lurking negativity there is on the edges of the mind. And fundamentally, it's the lurking negativity that makes us unhappy, really takes up real estate. I think we have a certain amount of innate capacity for well-wishing, and that when that's up and running at full tilt, we really feel connected in the world, not isolated at all, accompanied. Not separate from this whole world of people wending their way through a life. Not really separate from other people wending their way through a life. One of the hopes of contemplative practice is to dissolve the sense that there's a separation really between me in here and everybody else out there. But really that there's this thing called life making its way through everybody, and me as well. And here we are, all of us doing it together and all depending on each other. Love your relatives and your friends as if your life depended on it, because it does. Do you know, in... uh, in a minute, we'll read the Metta Sutta together and we'll talk about it as a text and we'll sit some. The plan for, my plan for this afternoon is that we'll just be together like this for until about 4.30. So um, it's like a retreat. I'd, li- I'd like to invite you to a retreat. It's just like a retreat. Um, and we won't take a break so that whenever you need to get up and for any reason, you just go and do that and come back so we can just continue straight along. And we'll study the sutta together and I'll tell you some ideas about it and I'll invite your experiences a little bit and we'll just spend the time together. Before we read the sutta together, I'd like to tell you that uh, in the classic stories about uh, the Buddha, um, when it says that uh, the Buddha taught the, the Metta Sutta when he pronounced it, it was because he had uh, trained monks for long enough to be able to send them out on their own. And uh, that uh, the, the, the folklore that goes with that story is that they were afraid to be on their own that the the uh, folklore at the time was that to be alone out in the night, that there were all kinds of spirits. There was certainly in in the forests, there were all kinds of animals, and that people were afraid to be on their own and alone. And the Metta Sutta was a talisman that uh, the Buddha said, this will protect you. It was like a protection cord. 
And first of all, I like that idea very much because I don't think it actually protects you in the way of against animals. My friend Joseph Goldstein said he was taking a walk and practicing metta and saying the metta phrases to himself. And he came to an intersection and a very uh, unpleasant looking dog came running out of a driveway. And as hard as he could, he said those net metta phrases to the dog that bit him. <laughs> so I actually don't think that it's a magical protection against the kinds of things that happen in a life. But I think it is a not magical protection against the pain of enmity in your own heart and negativity in your own heart and grudge, and it's not magical. But in the time of the Buddha, uh, when he taught it, what I understood of the folklore is that he told, them, he told his uh, students that there were 11 benefits of metta. And if you read metta texts, they'll say that there are 11 benefits of people who practice loving-kindness. So I'll tell you the 11 benefits. And you can see which of those benefits you'd like the most for you. Do you know the 11 benefits of metta? Oh, good. So, uh, so here's a good way to tell you. I'll tell you, and you can recite them back to me one at a time as I tell you, okay? So you say back to me. People who practice metta... Sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die, they die unconfused. And when they die, and when they die their, rebirth their rebirth is in heavenly realms. That sound good to you? <laughs> if you could have one of those benefits, did you pick out which one you want? Everybody knows? I'll tell them to you again, and you can pick out one. We're going to take a vote, okay? <laughs> so, people who practice metta, sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. You got it, the one you want? Okay, so here's the drill. We're gonna, I'm, I'll say it again slowly, and you raise your hand for yours. No changing, okay? Okay, so that's it. <laughs> so I'm the only one that will know that you're the only one that raises your hand on that particular one, but you won't be. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. 
their faces are clear, their minds are serene. <laughs> they die unconfused, and when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So first of all, the news is that there were hands up for everything. So that's number one. And the, clearly the two most hands up, I, actually it's not usually so dramatic, but then again, this is New York Insight, so <laughs> this is language that you speak here. The two most hands up ones were Mind Serene and Dying Unconfused. I like those very much. Both of them, I like them all very much. They all appeal to me. As a matter of fact, when, when I first learned metta, uh, my teacher, of course, was Sharon Salzberg, and uh, I learned it from her in, in uh, Barry. I went on retreat there, and I met her in a personal interview, and she said, okay, now, before you begin to practice, the, actually, the metta resolves, I want you to learn these benefits. And so here's these list of these 11 benefits. Go to your room, learn the list, and just learn the list. So I sat down, and I recited the list to myself. I put it down, I'm sitting, and I say the list out loud to myself. Then I say it again, and I say it again, and I say it again, and I say it again. And I start to have it in my memories. I close my eyes, I say it again, again, again. I started to feel extraordinarily good. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm not even doing the metta phrases yet. I'm, I'm just actually doing the benefits of metta. But actually there's something to learn from that. Because what I was doing, uh, among other things, is a concentration meditation. But like, like a mantra, I was saying those things over and over again. Which meant that during the time that I was saying them, I wasn't thinking anything else, I was saying them. I was also saying extremely uh, wonderful uh, things that might happen to me. So it lifts up the mind, and if I were thinking about them as uh, wishes for myself, because I certainly wish to sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, and dream peaceful dreams, and to have people love me, and angels love me, and angels take care of me, and nothing should harm me, and that I should have a face that's clear and a mind that's unconfused and a mind that's serene, that'd be great. So I'm wishing myself all these wonderful things and feeling very good about it. And there's something that I appreciate more and more over the years, not that I was excited about being happier, but that praying for oneself and wishing the best for oneself is really a good thing. It comes out of the same place of really sincerely wishing well for other people. Because I, when I think to myself, I'm not sincerely wishing for that person, it's because that person in some way has offended me or I don't like them or I'm not comfortable with this piece or that piece of them. And when I can't wish entirely sincerely well for myself because I'm not pleased with myself either. So it really means it's a healing thing for myself because however I'm doing, that I'm not, even something that I'm doing that I'm not so proud of. If I, my wisdom were installed, if I were really unconfused, I would remember that I and everybody else is always doing the best I can. And that forgiveness really is, is a piece of wisdom. 
We'll come back to that over and over and over again. But to really be able to see, if I can't wish myself well wholeheartedly, I can't wish anybody else well wholeheartedly. You need a whole heart to be able to do it. And if there's a part of my heart that's held ransom by my feelings about myself that I haven't got this together or I haven't got that together or I didn't do this right, if I didn't or if I haven't got it together, it's because I can't. I'm doing the best I can. Everyone else is too. That's, I think, the part of profound wisdom that, that's fundamental to Dharma. We'll come back to it again and again because I know that that's a point that really needs to be elucidated. But anyway, the mind gets serene when it's not flurried with other stuff and it gets wise when it's unconfused. I think the whole of practice is going from, uh, the texts call it from ignorance to wisdom. But the ignorance is confusion. If the mind gets unconfused, I think wisdom is really self-relevatory. If we're well people with good neurology, not everybody, but not every single person that's born in a human form, but people who are reasonably well cared for, reasonably healthy psychological people, when our minds are relaxed and, and clear, we're really kind. We really understand that, well, if I said we become wise, well, what would wisdom be? Wisdom is we're doing the best we can. Whatever it is is temporal. It isn't going to last. We make things worse when we struggle with what we can't change. Things happen because other things have happened. There aren't so many truths. And Buddhist truths aren't different from anybody else's truths. They're truth truths. And I think that hearing them is not the same as actually getting them and understanding them. We really have to come back to that. I couldn't be better because I know that sticks in the mind. But I think that we should sit a little bit because part of this afternoon is uh, that I hope we'll do is we'll sit and we'll do some metta practice and we'll read the sutta. Let's sit first and then we'll read the sutta. One of my teachers said, every time you begin a sitting, you should think of something uh, benevolent that you did today. Just as you close your eyes, think of a generous thing that you did today or a benevolent thing that you did today. That that particular teacher said it lifts up your mind and heart so that it's easier to focus your attention. And for one thing, I think that we all did generous things We all gave ourselves a gift by coming here. We come here uh, really on behalf of our own hearts, but on behalf of all beings. So you already did a very good thing. 
I actually like it that for the most part in Dharma we use the word wholesome more than bad or good. It's a wholesome thing to come here. So think about that. I often, when I start to sit, just sit. I spend the first minutes of sitting, settling into sitting, feeling my body however it is. I often bring my attention to hearing consciousness and listen with my eyes closed to every sound near and far, inside and outside that I can hear. I think you'll find that as you sit listening that the attention, heightened attention to ear consciousness wakes up all the body awarenesses so you'll feel your body more keenly sitting on the floor, on a chair, wherever you are. And you'll experience the movements of the body in response to breath in and out more clearly. And people experience the breath moving in and out both in the body with their belly moving out and in or their chest widening and then settling down or actually the sense of air brushing past the nostrils as it comes in and out or the sense of the shoulders rising and falling or your arms coming out to the side and then back down again as your ribcage expands and then settles down. all the different ways that the movement of breath into and out of your body changes the body so it stretches and then relaxes back. If it's comfortable for you to rest your attention just in that sensation, breath in and out, then by all means stay with that.
you find that sensations of um, tingling in your body or other sensations in your body, warmth or cool, call your attention. Then they have called your attention. Mindfulness rests easily on the prominent sensation of the moment. This is the mind resting. Minded alert and poised, just recognizing what's happening. This is happening, now that's happening. Now this is happening, now that's happening. If at some time the mind's natural peace is disrupted by an attachment to a thought that gets more and more elaborated and more and more distant from current experience, or if the attention gets so uh, weak that the mind falls asleep, in that moment of awareness that easy mindfulness is not present, that's all you really need. The awareness, whoops, not present. But now I am. The next breath is right there. It's already happening. So I'll be quiet while we sit together. We'll sit for 20 minutes.
Does the room feel does the room feel different to you after we've been sitting in it for a while? I think so. I, actually, I think I feel different, and then the room feels different. So I want to talk about two things a little bit between us, and talk two things about what happened during that time, that twenty minutes that you were focusing your attention that way. So make a perspective about why do we do that? I mean, we don't just do it just to calm down. We do it because the hope is that by paying attention moment to moment in an uncomplicated way with nothing going on extra, that we'll be able to in some way have direct encounters with those liberating truths uh, the, th the three liberating truths that the Buddha said we really needed to understand in order to be able to not become confused in this world. The truth of, of impermanence, that things keep changing. The truth that uh, suffering is the experience we have when the mind is unable to accept the changing experiences that it encounters. And the truth that everything is conditioned by everything else. You know, when I first started practice, I thought to myself, well, who doesn't know that? Everybody knows that. Well, I, I thought that about the first two of those. Is there an echo? I hope not. Is there an annoying echo? Or just an echo, not an annoying echo. We don't get annoyed anymore. You know, we just... We have transcended annoyance. When I first heard my teachers talk about that, I thought to myself, who doesn't know that, that things pass, that everything passes? Last year's uh, Super Bowl, last year's World Series, this year's Academy Awards, all in the same distant past with everything else. What, how will experiencing that in some profound way that I can't imagine how really alter my experience in life, make me wiser, was the thought I had. But I thought, who doesn't know that? And I thought, who doesn't know that we suffer when the mind can't let go of something that it can't tolerate? So this shouldn't be happening, and it can't let go of it. Then we suffer. Everybody knows that because their mind has gotten caught with something. And in most cases, by now, whatever it was has passed for now. You know, there's sometimes when you think, oh, I just wish that hadn't come to my mind because now I'm so aggravated. May I not think about that, lest it come up. You ever have that? May I not think about that? Especially on retreat, that's a terrible thing to have to deal with because you think, may I not think about topic number this, A, B, or C, because if it comes up, then it makes a tape loop over and over and over and over again. So everybody knows that, but really to know it. So I said, everybody knows that. And then the third one was everything conditions everything else. And there isn't any separate anything that's having this experience. It's a just communal experience evolving. Interdependent experience, no separate self. So I thought to myself, well, these teachers, they're right about the first two and they're wrong about the third. <laughs> Because there definitely is a separate self. I definitely am looking out of these eyes and hearing between these ears, and this is my life, and don't tell me. 
But I didn't ask about it because I, what I thought is that they would catch on soon enough. And, and I didn't want to risk looking foolish myself, which is still a risk I'm not so willing to take. And truth to tell, I was wrong about the third. By and by, you get it, that there's no one here that's a permanent and unchanging one. And you say, well, what good does that do me? You know. So now I know that, okay, everything is empty of personal experience. There was a time that my husband and I had studied for a while with an ad Advaita teacher that we were both very fond of. And uh, one of the techniques of Advaita is the direct... the, the technique of direct inquiry, uh, we'd come together in satsang and he would say at a certain point, a person, he'd, he'd invite people to have conversations and someone would say, I'm uh, so angry or I'm so humiliated or and he'd explain the circumstances and he'd say, I'm so angry or I'm so humiliated and this teacher would say, where is the I that's humiliated? And often the person would say, oh, ah, and they'd realize it, and they'd feel free. But we were very excited about that, that practice, and we actually went to India to do it, there for a month, came back very much in the swing of that. And one day I, I mentioned at the, as we sat down for dinner, I, recounting the events of the day, I, I began to tell, I launched into a story that said, began... I'm so annoyed at, I've named one of our children, I said, I'm so annoyed at so-and-so for doing this and that, whatever it was. And he, in his best Advaita non-self way, he said, where is the I that's annoyed? And I said, don't give me any of that guff. <laughs> you and I both know that there's no I that got annoyed, but annoyance is here. So it's, very, it's really important to know that separate self or not separate self, annoyance keeps arising. How many people got annoyed during the time that we sat about anything? There you go. No, don't have to say what. Among other things, we get annoyed about ourselves, with ourselves, because the attention doesn't stay focused. We get annoyed about whatever it is that we get annoyed at something we remember, something that's happening. It's incredibly easy to get annoyed. The thing that's really uh, the, the point of practice is that annoyance by itself clouds the mind, so we really can't continue to see clearly those fundamental truths, which if I saw them all the time, would keep that wisdom installed in such a way that I would feel compassionate for myself and everybody else, really compassionate for how easily I'm annoyed. You know, uh, two months ago, and I was uh, I was in Europe with my husband, and um, skipping over the whole story, but he suddenly took quite acutely ill, and he was hospitalized in, in a very emergency way. It was very touch and go for some period of days. He in fact remained in the ICU for a long time, and in fact, the end of the story is he's home with me, and he's every bit as well as he was when he went. It was nothing that was debilitating. So he's an old man, but he's in, in the same good health that he was before the episode happened. But at the end of the episode, and when it became clear that he was going to live, and he was rehabilitating himself from having been 
actually on life support for 10 days. I was so, we were both so delighted with the fact that he hadn't died that we just were really reveling in the fact that we had this relationship and so long and here we had another little bit of time that was now going to be allotted to us and how could we ever be annoyed with each other for the slightest... (laughs) So you're all laughing and I haven't even told you the end of the story, you know, because you know the end of the story. I'm never going to get annoyed at this person. And it's and the wisdom that's that's missing in that moment of annoy is life is very tenuous. Life is precious. One day to the next, it could be otherwise. You know that we get up in the morning is a miracle, and if we make it to be old, that's a miracle. And if we make it to get up another day, we get and we still remember and we know who we are. It's a miracle. And that we can do anything is a miracle, and that we have people who love us is a miracle. The whole thing is a miracle, and it's still easy to get annoyed. For whatever neurological reason, we are reactive human beings. And to be able to be reactive and see, whoops, look, I did it again. Let me not go with that. Let me choose something else. This is maybe my chance to say, I want to say this now or later. I think I'll say it now and I'll come back to it later. Since you all are probably devotees of the Dharma, a lot of you probably come here all the time, a lot of you probably could take a test on the Eightfold Path and recite the eight parts of the Eightfold Path, the Path of Practice. What I'd like to say at this point is that the Path of Practice that I think is the unsung hero of the Eightfold Path, you want to take a guess? What do you think is the unsung, undersung hero of the Eightfold Path? Do you know the Eightfold Path? Ah, no, okay, we go back. Remedial Eightfold Path, here we go. (laughs) Once upon a time, the Buddha, having woken up and realized that uh, the cause of suffering is ignorance, he taught this. He said the point that what we have to do is so cultivate our minds so that they're no longer ignorant. And there's an eightfold way, eight ways to do it. One of them is every time we get a hint of what's true, that's wise understanding, and we have to cultivate that. And so we talk to our friends, and we study together, and we come together. And out of wise understanding comes wise aspiration. Say, I want to be like that. I want to be free of anger and greed and confusion. That's appealing to me. So that when I start to do something that's motivated by anger or greed or delusion, I say to myself, whoops, I don't feel that. This isn't what I've chose. I have that other aspiration. I'm doing that. That's one piece of two, two parts of the Eightfold Path, one section of the Eightfold Path. Other section of the Eightfold Path is... Uh, the uh, the cultivation of uh, morality, wise action, not doing things that cause harm to oneself or other people. That makes a lot of sense. You don't have to have remorse or guilt or confusion about it. Wise speech, because it's so easy. It's so easy to say something that's wounding and forever and ever and ever. If there's a room full of people like this and I say... Can you remember a really uh, hurtful thing that someone said to you? 
in the last 10 years? Who can remember? Who can remember in the last 20 years? 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. How old were you when you remember the first hurtful thing that somebody said? I'll give you a hint. It's usually your age minus five or six. Somebody said something to you. Your teacher said something. Your parents said something. A classmate said something. Something that was insulting. Maybe it didn't change your whole life. But it got written down in there. We could talk a whole lot about wise speech. Wise speech, wise action, wise um, livelihood. We spend so much time trying to keep ourselves going. We have to in our life. It's appropriate to make a living or to somehow account for yourself in this life. To do it without exploiting other people, which would cause pain for yourself when in guilt or the other person. And the three remaining parts of the path are called the inner development or the mind development part of the path. And they are wise effort, wise concentration, and wise mindfulness. We've practiced wise concentration. We've tried to this morning. Uh, first of all, by sitting quietly and paying attention moment to moment. We practiced more wise concentration when we did the repetition of the benefits of metta earlier on. So we really all were thinking the same thing at the same time. We didn't do it very long. But had we done it very long, that would have been a concentration exercise, just this. When we sat quietly for 20 minutes, it was more of a mindfulness period where I did not give the instruction. I could have made it a concentration practice. We'll do a concentration practice just in a little while. But I could have said, really, really be with each particular breath. When you feel your attention on the breath, leave the attention on the breath. That would have been maybe cultivating a little bit more concentration because it really pushes out every other thing that might catch the attention. And I wanted for the mind to feel more relaxed, just being with whatever came up, which is more wise mindfulness. Wise effort, which you probably guessed now, because I've saved it for the last, is what I think is the undersung hero of the path. And wise effort is quite specifically defined in, uh, in Buddhist texts. It's not trying hard, which it sounds like it might be, make a big effort. But it's the determination and then the really the effecting of moment to moment noticing whether the what's going on in the mind is wholesome or not wholesome. Remember when I, we started and I said, think about some generosity that you did today or some benevolence? That's to fill the mind, to prime it, put some wholesome things in it. You feel better when your mind is full of wholesome things. When we did our looking at people and blessing them in your mind, didn't you feel happier when you, after you did that? Feel like sending people little valentines, really? Like a little blessing? When, uh, when uh, Dalila said, look at people and you know, shake their hand or touch their arm or something, I'd say hello. Didn't it pick up your mood? When we fill the mind with friendliness and warmth and outgoing and generosity, when we smile at people, we feel better. 
Somebody once, Thich Nhat Hanh likes to tell groups that are meditating with him, as you begin this sitting, smile. And somebody asked him, said, what if I don't feel like smiling? What if everything is going wrong with me? Or I had a really bad day? And uh, uh, I, I love his answer. He said, all the more reason to smile. What's the purpose not to? By smiling, you're not announcing to the world, by the way, I'm happy. The world is not looking at you. But, but you're relaxing your face, and you're not holding on to the grip of what a bad day I'm having. I'm really having a bad day. I'll be damned if I'm going to smile. Just because he said, we're really peculiar people. You know, We're really peculiar. Like, here's a way to feel better. Smile. Hey, don't tell me. I don't feel in that mood. <laughs> Really peculiar. Wholesome states in the mind keep it buoyant. I started by telling you the the funny poem by Billy Collins about you have to be able to look at this barking dog and say, hey, listen to this new version of Beethoven's Fifth. And you have to be able to look at your situation and say, you know what? Today one of my daughters is having this and one of my other daughters is having a baby. And I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I hope for the best for everybody. And we never know. You never know this is a bad thing, this is a good thing. We don't know. I used to think this is a bad thing, this is a good thing. I still sometimes fall into that trap. This is bad, this is good. I don't know. Because I don't know what's going to be the sequelae of that. What, as we read the sutta on a little bit together, the metta sutta, one of my very favorite lines is the line in the end that says, one of the instructions is it says, by not, by not clinging to fixed views, the pure-hearted one is not born again into suffering. I think that not clinging to fixed views, the biggest fixed view I have is this should be happening or this shouldn't be happening. It causes me a lot of trouble because if I think that, what's the use of thinking that? It is happening. So that having that kind of an opinion about it just causes my mind to be in a resentful mood with the world. So the wise effort is the effort to cultivate and maintain wholesome states in the mind because they keep them buoyant. And the other half of it is to decultivate, to, un, to try to remove or dispel unwholesome states. Unwholesome means states that don't create happiness in oneself or in other people. Like resentment and revenge. It's so interesting to see how the mind can catch on to a... Um, what the, right, to righteous indignation. Somebody does something and you think, mm, they did the wrong thing and I did the right thing. And they're wrong and I'm right. And then you tell yourself the story. Then you tell it again. Then you tell it again and again and again. And you think of a few other people to tell it to or write an email or call. And you think to yourself, why am I doing this? I'm like lighting a fire in my mind and then blowing on it. It's not going to do me any good to do this. But there's something that's really very seductive, like a Velcro, a righteous indignation says, aha, you want to have a little storm in your mind? This gives you at least an honest reason. Look what happened. Ah, oh, you could get upset about that. And this certainly is not a call for passivity or say whatever is happening that's all right with me. There are plenty of things in the world that I am unhappy about that, they, that they're going on. And I, I feel, um, 
I don't know, maybe I feel actually indignant that uh, that the forces that, that are in power seem to be impoverishing more people as it's enriching other people. I wish very much that it were different. And so I try as much as I can to vote, to teach, to do this, to do that. But I try also to do it without being mad at everybody because it doesn't do any good. Extra, it just upsets my mind and it doesn't get anything changed faster. So that wise effort, which is, I think, the undersung hero of the path, it really doesn't mean, it really doesn't mean, as I thought earlier when I began to practice, that mindfulness means just sitting with whatever it is. I was sitting with them angry. Mm, boy, am I angry. Really angry. They did that. Mm-hmm. I'm so angry. Angry, 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 angry. Mm-hmm. Angry. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this. Okay, breath in and out, breath out. Still angry. Very angry. Very angry. That's not the point, you know. You see, angry, if you see houses on fire, you don't say fire. Hmm, very interesting. <laughs> you call a fire department. You do something about it. You stand in the street, the car careens around the corner. You don't say car, car. <laughs> I think it's a mistake in, because I used to hear those instructions. Whatever comes up, be open to it. You be open to it, you notice what's happening, and then you do, you respond in a wholesome way. There's that anger in the mind, anger in the mind, anger's in your mind, sweetheart. Take a breath in and out, you'll be all right. May you be peaceful and happy and come to the end of, but, 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 all right, yes, indeed, but take a breath in and out, in and out, you'll figure this out, but first you have to calm yourself down. You're in pain, not good for you, the anger, yeah, 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 okay. Taking breath in and out, taking breath in and out. Mind calming down, figuring out what to do. It's not about inactivity. It's about doing it with clarity. So when we sat together before, that's a whole long talk about, um, really, why do we do it? We come together and we sit. But it's really, really important for me to remember why it is that I'm sitting, what I want to have happen. Because it's not going to happen by magic. It has to happen if I know what I'm looking for. In my own practice years, I, first of all, I'll tell you that I sat for about, I don't even know how many years before I figured out why I was there, but a long time. I liked what I heard. I liked listening to Dharma. I liked my teachers. I liked going on retreat. I liked everything about it. And uh, I didn't actually have a clear intention of what I wanted to have happen for me so that I didn't do very much. I just kind of sat there and enjoyed myself on retreat, unless I thought about topic A or topic B or topic C. That would upset me for a period of time, and then fortunately would fall out of my mind for a while, and I'd feel better. When I began to understand that the point of practice was to be able to recognize my mind's on fire and be able to do something about it, on my own behalf, not forget about it, not pretend it's not there, but notice that it's there and respond with compassion to stay here. Last week's New Yorker had a cartoon of two dogs, two big dogs sitting on adjacent Zabutans. Did you see it? 
they're sitting on their hindquarters like this, and one is talking to the other, and he says, what you really have to learn is how to stay. <laughs> but that's it. You have to stay here and say, this is what's happening. You have to look at it and be able to recognize, I'm terrified, I'm frightened, I'm humiliated, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. I'm anyone of anything that we get to be because we're human beings. And, and then to, not to just, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed. Okay, I'm determined not to do that again. Take a breath in and out. I was ignorant when I did that. I wasn't thinking clearly. I made a mistake. I had a friend once who's not in this world anymore, who said there were nine words of person. Everybody of the world said those nine words. We could have a different world. And the nine words were, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Please forgive me. The whole world would be different. But I'm just now in that moment, a minute ago, I realized that I need to say those words to myself every once in a while too. Sorry, I made a mistake. I forgive me. It was the best I could do under the circumstances. So I don't have to remain anguished about it. So when we sit together quietly like we did before, because now it's, it's a little bit since we finished sitting, but I'm going to ask you to remember, try to remember what we were doing, what was happening for you. Because there are two things I think that one hopes to see in that, in that uh, cleared out space of not too many activities going on, just sitting quietly. One is we hope to see, really, uh, the truth that things come and go, that your breath comes and goes, uh, pleasant feelings come and go, wide awakeness comes and goes. How many people sat and then all of a sudden I felt wide awake, mm, and then all of a sudden found they were sleepy? Hmm? Yeah. Well, let's see. So let's start this way. So there, there are the things that, that cloud the mind and obscure clear seeing, and there are the things we see if we see clearly. So let's talk a little bit about the things that cloud the mind. So uh, how many people had a moment or two or three of sleepiness? It's afternoon, you know. It's afternoon, it's a warm room, you rush to get here in the cold, sitting here. What did you do when you were sleepy? You tried to wake up. What else? Slept. Slept. <laughs> Both of them are perfectly fine responses. But you know, assuming we make those decisions kindly, try to wake up is a, a, is a good thing. How do you how do you try to wake up if you're sleepy? Open your eyes. You open your eyes. What else? You can energize with the breath, take a deeper breath, sit up more straight. You can stand up. Pinch myself. Hmm? Pinch. You can pinch yourself. That's a, that's a little, uh, well, it depends on how you feel about that, if you want to. And, uh, I, th- I think the response is we're always looking for a kind response. Uh, even the response of you take a little nap. It's not so, not so, I don't rule that out. It's nice not to snore, you know, because you're in a room with other people. 
But if I'm sitting myself somewhere, it's not a problem. Sometimes you sit, sit, sit. And then you realize that you doze off for a minute or two and then you wake up. That's actually not problematic. I think it's the equivalent of a power nap. And the, you know, the attention, which has been paying attention, paying attention, paying attention, paying attention, it gets tired. It's like when you, isn't today the, uh, the New York Half Marathon? Yeah. So you run, 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 and then you see people, every once in a while they're walking because they ran out of steam. So they slow down, they walk for a while, and then they pick up the pace again. The same, you're sitting, and every once in a while the mind drifts, and then you wake up. I had a teacher once who said, that's great. He said, don't fall off the Zafu, just sit. And he said, when the moment that you wake up, the moment that you wake up is usually like a startling moment. You say, oh, I was asleep. But that moment, you're not asleep, you're awake. He said, use the energy of that moment to bring to the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. Because yeah, the way you could um, squander that energy is like, oh, goodness, I was sleeping again. I hope I wasn't snoring. I'll never be a good meditator. I'm never going to get it. This is the wrong practice for me. I should take up Tai Chi. This isn't right. There's a, there's a, there's a zillion things that you could do rather than say, I'm up, and I'm still up, and I'm still up, and I'm still up. What else happened to you while you were sitting? that disturbed the clarity. Mind drifts. Actually, I think it's probably your attention gets just sleepier, and then other things come. The things that are on the, in the inbox in the desk, that what's going on in your life comes up and circles around. And that's not, I mean, it's a perfectly normal thing to have happen, to have that circle around. You notice it, and you say, oh, all right. If it, if it just if it's something in the inbox goes through, forgot to call so and so, and you think, I'll call so and so later. Okay, here's my breath. It doesn't have to disturb the peace. We don't stop thinking. You know, sometimes people say, you know, I sat the whole time, and my mind never stops thinking. The mind just, thought machine just keeps making thoughts, like the heart keeps beating, and the organs keep doing whatever digestion they're doing. Everything keeps on. The, the thought machine makes thoughts. I think it looks a little bit like a popcorn machine in a, in, a, in a theater where it just makes random popcorn here and there. Especially when the mind is relaxed, then it makes whatever kind of popcorn here or there. And the fact that thoughts go through the mind is not necessarily disturbing. It's when a thought captivates, when the mind, interested in a thought, grabs it and works it over a little bit. All the thoughts can go by. It's just like thoughts going by. It's like waves. Not so much. It doesn't have to disturb the natural clarity of the mind. What else? Physical discomfort. Physical discomfort calls your calls your attention. What did you what did you do, for instance? Like what kind of physical discomfort? Uh, like in your knees? In your back. So, you know, is that other people's experience as well? And you certainly have had the instruction when uh, strong physical sensations arise in your body. Uh, don't run away from it. Just bring your attention 
to the strong physical sensations. So on the one one other thing to put in, just even a caveat before you start, if you have some strong physical sensation and you can easily fix it, if your foot has fallen asleep, for instance, and by moving it from a full lotus to not, you'll be comfortable. You can move. In five seconds you've moved and the problem is over and you just relax. If it's some artifact of sitting long, then it's actually useful to try to be with strong sensation for a while and try to relax with it. You get to discover that the two aspects of strong sensation is one of them is the strong sensation that's the sensation itself and the, the, the other part of it is the mind in reaction to the strong sensation. I've had the experience, I think about it, it doesn't happen very much, but when I was much younger and, and sitting on the zafu because my back was young and, um, and trying very hard to not move, uh, I had the experience, you probably do too sometimes, it feels like your knee is going to explode. And then you think, if I don't move, if they don't ring the bell soon, I'm going to explode. They really have to ring the bell because they really have to ring the bell. Really, I'm opening my eyes. Peek, aha! She's holding the, the <laughs> ringer. That's a good sign. The bell's going to ring. So I, I was sitting on a retreat, and the bell didn't ring. The bell didn't ring. I thought I was going to die, and finally the bell rang. Ding! I thought, oh, thank goodness! And I opened my eyes, and the bell hadn't rung. I had hallucinated it. And it happened twice more. I said, okay, that's very weird. I'm going to sit again. And I, you know, I'd hallucinate the bell. It wasn't the bell. I'd hallucinate the bell. It wasn't the bell. And finally, I heard the bell, and I thought, well, I'm not even opening my eyes. I'm just waiting, and I'll see if, I, if everybody's actually moving. And then I'll do something. So then I opened my eyes, and everybody, lo and behold, is standing up and moving. And, oh, look at that. Actually, it was the bell. And it must have been maybe 15 seconds by that time uh, since the bell rang, maybe 30 seconds. And enough time for me to know that my knee was not hurting that much. It hurt, but not that much. And that uh, uh, at least a, ver a very significant part of the pain was the pain that the mind ends, adds to it by tensing itself up with the thought I'm never going to be able to walk again. I won't be able to stand up. They have to ring the bell. And it's imperative in the mind, which is, a second, which is actually the second of those three um, um, characteristics that the Buddha said you had to know, characteristics of experience. It's also the second of the Four Noble Truths. Imperative in the mind is, is suffering. That uh, that really, it's the experience is just the experience. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's not pleasant. That's what a life is. But imperative in the mind that things should be different is what actually is the the mental suffering that the Buddha was talking about coming to the end of. We won't come to the end of pain. There are painful physical things in life, and there are painful mental things in life. But it's different from suffering. We'll do one more. Anything else happen to you to disrupt the clarity of your other sitting? When you asked initially, uh, you know, I was thinking about something benevolent that you did for yourself today. And, uh, today was is really a day for me. I, I saw Sharon this morning, seeing you today, this afternoon. But 
It was a benevolent, but I'm, I'm so sad, you know, hard-headed. And, and even trying to get to the, the beauty of the dead, which it is, you know, I'm hard-headed. And I have to stay with the hard-headedness because I really couldn't, uh, it's there. It, I said it, so it's there. No, what's your, what's your name? Richard. Richard. No, I absolutely... I think you can say it's a very good day. My heart is heavy in this very good day, and it's heavy with the loss of this person that I loved so much that's gone till now. Uh, that doesn't make it a not good day. It makes it, you know, it's a very rich day. I had this person, I loved him or her so much. And, and I am bereft. I, was, I, I am bereft, and I was with Sharon this morning, I'm here this afternoon. It's a day, it's a life. And I, I you know, I think to myself that just the, the idea, I can do this, I can do this, is what's so sustaining. Sometimes in a life you think to yourself, this is too terrible, I can't do it. But then you think everybody gets to do this one way or another. It's hard for everybody, this life. And sooner or later we get to do one or another variety of this is the way that human beings have pain. And we hope happiness. That's a reason for cultivating the loving kindness. It's a full day. Hmm? It's a full day. It's a full day. So I thought I thought I thought it would be great if we read the sutta together. And I'll give you a hint before we start. So here's the hint. Uh, in uh, textbooks on what the Buddha taught, it says the path of, um, at, at least uh, Theravada textbooks, it says the path of purification of the heart, which is really becomes clear to me that the purification of the heart is removing all of the um, all of the hesitations to loving that fundamentally I see it actually quite uh, graphically like here we have a heart and its potential is to be able to love uh, that doesn't mean like by the way love it just means feel benevolent too have a kind a warm feeling towards really wish well to fundamentally even those people that uh, that are not our favorite people out of an awareness that life is so difficult for everyone. You know, one of the things I like to tell people when I remember to is that the first, very first retreat that I went on, which was a weekend retreat at someone's private home way before I went on my first formal retreat uh, I was ill prepared for my husband had gone to, on a retreat and he came home and he said Sil this is great you should do it and I went on this weekend retreat and everything about it was so hard for me I didn't understand the, I mean I understood the words of the instructions but we sat and walked and sat and walked as people did on retreat and my back hurt and my knees hurt and I was 40 years younger than now and anyway but still, and I was still, actually I was 40 years younger from now, than now, but I was still older than most of the people who were there. 
because I was on the old end of hip, and uh, and well, seriously, I was I was forty years old. I was forty years old. I had a family. I was not used to getting dressed and undressed in a room with fifteen other people in it and sleeping on the floor on a mattress and uh, and sharing one toilet. I mean, everything about it was difficult. And I really spent the weekend preparing bad uh, speeches to make to my husband when he picked me up on Sunday (laughs) to tell him what a mistake it was that I was there and what had he done and what was he thinking. And, uh, of course, that didn't happen. You know, somehow I thought about it later and I thought, well, somehow I went home from there. Uh, Instead of that, I mean, I didn't have some great revelation and my mind didn't feel that all much better. But I went home and signed up for a two-week silent retreat. (laughs) So something must have happened and something must have gone in. And I think one of the things that was true was I was doing my walking meditation back and forth in the living room of this home in uh, in front of a mantelpiece. And there was a piece of art on the mantelpiece that was one of those burls that you see sometimes in, uh, you, you buy them in national parks and in stores, and they say, sisters are friends forever, or home sweet home, or something like that. So here's this burl, and it says, life is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And I thought to myself, huh. And I, did, I don't know if I thought to myself, well, if that's what they're actually teaching here, I'll come. But that was, I, every time I walked back and forth, I read that and I thought, hmm, hmm. So I like to think that there was that little piece of thing on the mantelpiece, because you don't know what little thing it was that changes the course of your whole life. And maybe if I hadn't at that point, maybe a year later I would have met somebody or something else would have happened. But it didn't. It happened like that. So you don't know. So when you read a Buddhist textbook, it says the, the path of purification of the heart has three parts to it. One part is the cultivation of uh, virtue. One part is the cultivation of a pliable, a resilient, um, alert mind. And one part is the consolidation of wisdom. And you could write textbooks, and there are textbooks and textbooks on each part of that path, wisdom and uh, virtue and the cultivation of the mind. And they were all in this particular teaching. So I think it's an overview of the whole path. Let's read it together. And so keep in mind as we're reading it, uh, because I think it's pretty clear where the virtue and wisdom and cultivation parts are. And there are some lines that I just love. Actually, there are no lines that I don't love, but there are some lines that I think, ah, that's it. Okay? We'll read together. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, 
needs. He's satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all living beings, may they be weak or weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mightier, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Or despise any being in any state, that none wish anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, freed from drowsiness, one should sustain this revelation. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is received from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. What do you think? Is that great? Well, that's a sort of a leading question. Huh? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There are some communities that chant it together every morning and evening. What is there left to say? So first of all, I don't know, it's not fair to say what do you think is the most amazing line because it's, they're all amazing. And besides, it clearly means I have my idea about what's amazing. Can you tell me an amazing line? An amazing line. Or an amazing set of words? I'll give you a hint. <laughs> I'll tell you. <laughs> I think it's amazing to say omitting none. That is so radical. That's amazing. Omitting none. I mean, it's, 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 it's the stuff that jokes are made of. People come and say, you know, I can, I, I can love everybody in the whole world, near and far, seen or unseen, except my brother-in-law. Him, on account of what he once did or he once said or this, or they name a certain political figure, they say, that person never... Like somehow we, learn, we lose something if we give in and say, okay, for that political commentator, also, may they be peaceful and happy. Yeah. As a mother, the line that says, we should love everyone as we love our child, I, think, I, I don't know how we could do that <laughs> because there's so much emotion would be a beautiful thing. 
you know, as you're saying that, I had two things come up in my mind. And I think it's true. I'll just tell you the two things and you see if you can't relate to them. Because in a way they're saying yes and no. Um, what year was it? 1989, there was a big earthquake in San Francisco. And I was sitting, um, I was sitting in, uh, I was sitting in a room with two people I was talking to, and um, in, in Marin County, and in a fairly not so populated, not in the middle of the city, and uh, far from the epicenter. But nevertheless, we were sitting, and all of a sudden, the room started to shake, and the beams made a funny sound of the beams really stretching. And uh, one of the people I was with said, this is an earthquake, let's step out. So you stand up and you go out the door because you want to be outside if there's an earthquake. So we go out, and the first thing I did is I looked at my watch. And I looked at my watch, and I, I knew I was looking at my watch and calculating. I had four children living, in, the adult children living in the Bay Area at that time, and all commuting from here to there to there to here. So by looking at my watch, I could immediately know who was likely to be on a bridge or on the Bay Area rapid transit at that point. So my first thing was, let's get out of here. Then you figure out what's happening. Then you look at your watch, and I think where my four children are. And I determined that they probably weren't. Of course, you never know where anybody is, but that they're not. And then the next thing is we said, let's go upstairs and turn on the TV and see what's happening and see what to do. And then you start to think about all those other people. And I think that we're wired that way. We're wired to look for where are our people. If you're in a hotel and uh, the, the fire alarm goes off in the middle of the night and you're there with other people from your family, you run out in the hall, you think, where are my people? And you assemble them and you go outside. You're really interested in all the other people in the hotel also getting out. But the first thing you think about is knocking on the doors of your people. I think we're wired that way, and I think it's a good thing that we have absolutely such um, strong bonds. By the way, I, I'm gonna, if I were writing this sutta now, there are certain lines that I would change. And one of the lines that I would change is I would write it as just as a parent would give a life, because I don't think that's it. I don't think it's uh, necessary. I think. Um, species-wise, in other species, it's it's um, usually it's a maternal thing to bear the young and take care of the young. In a culture where we, you know, the women bear the young, but everybody raises and everybody loves. I I don't actually like saying just as a mother, but anyway, I think it's built into us to have preferential, and I think it's be through those preferential bonds that we actually learn not only if we have children, but if we have friends that we dearly, dearly love, and then they're missing out of our life. Anything that we dearly, dearly cathect, and then we realize we might lose, teaches us really about how vulnerable this life is, how precarious it is. On one hand, precarious, most of us make it through some reasonable number of years. On the other hand, you never know. 
anything could happen. There's a very famous Buddhist story of um, tale, which I think is our story, of a monk uh, strolling along, meditating happily, and uh, all of a sudden being chased by a tiger and runs as fast as he can, and he comes to a cliff and jumps off the cliff because there's no place to go and the tiger is right behind him, and he jumps over the cliff and grabs onto a vine that's hanging off the cliff. You probably, many of you know this story. It's a fundamental classic story. Hanging on the vine and looks up and the tiger is growling over the side and down below are rushing waters and rocks. And here he is hanging on and he notices that there's a strawberry coming out of a crevice in the rock in front of him. And it's ripe and he picks it and he eats it and he says, that was a wonderful strawberry. That really, as the years go by, I think to myself, oh, there is my friend and my teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Hello, sweetheart. I've been, I had my antenna out looking for you all afternoon. I'm happy to see you. Here's a place right next to Ambika. That, I think, as the years go by, I see that more and more as the quintessential story of everybody's life. We are all hanging on a vine, all of us, even though we don't feel precarious at this moment. We don't know. When we leave to go home, we're going to have to go down in an elevator. It could plunge. We could get out. We could get run over. We could get knocked over by a, a, a skateboard, or we could get run over by a truck. Something could happen on the train by the time we get home. We, I mean, we're not going to get hit by lightning in New York, but who knows? Things... Every once in a while, there's a Billy Collins poem that says every once in a while a safe does fall out of a window and hit somebody who goes underneath. You don't know what's going to happen to you. When we were, uh, I mentioned before that my husband had taken ill an hour before he was fine. And then he got an acute infection. And then by that night, he was in, on a respirator. You don't know from one moment to the next what's going to happen. We're hanging on a vine, and this strawberry is the only strawberry we're ever going to have in this moment. And this moment is the only moment we're going to have. I got so excited to see Sharon, I forgot what I was talking about at that point. Wait, wait, wait. I, I have to dial it back. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, because you had asked the question about you really do have affiliative bonds with one's own children rather than all children. So I'm making, on the one hand, I believe that's true. And I believe that, that, that that's built into our neuro neurons. We recognize the cry of our children the way animals recognize the, the bleat of their calf. We just do because they're, they're kin and we take care of them. On the other hand, more and more, as I, I think especially as I get older, you see if you don't re resonate to this experience as well. I have the experience, uh, oh, let's think, uh, going to a, a graduation somewhere. Go to graduate, a sixth grade graduation, uh, and uh, eighth grade, no, let's make it more, let's make it a high school graduation. High school graduation, so 600 people are going to file in into an auditorium filled with parents and relatives. 
And everybody's looking around to look at their person. You look for, you know, because you want to see when yours comes in, because you want to take the picture, you don't want to miss it. But if, for instance, you're there accompanying somebody else and you're not looking for your person, you're just looking. I often think to myself, as you see all these beautiful scrub people coming in, dressed, combed, walking in, that they accomplished something, I think, how many dentist appointments went into this? How many, how many piano lessons did they get driven to? How many going in the middle of the night to emergency rooms? How many everything did all these people do? Everybody should march in. All the parents and the grandparents <laughs> should all march in because everybody actually got them up to that point. And at that point, they all look beautiful. And not any better any one of them than any other of them. And every once in a while that happens to me. I go, I mean, even in a foreign country, nobody I know is graduating. I walk past a schoolyard and you see a bunch of 10-year-olds playing in a schoolyard. And you look at them and they're beautiful. They're beautiful 10-year-olds. And you think to yourself, well, this is, you know, like, like wine has a vintage. This is a vintage of 10-year-old human beings coming up now. And look at this particular vineyard vintage of these 30 children, and they're beautiful. They're 10-year-olds. They're beautiful in their own way. And it's actually, I find it, it's a quite exhilarating to look at and admire the diversity of being without actually having anybody there that I have to think about and worry about and be concerned about. This is just 10-year-olds and just people. So I think both are true. I think we hope for both awarenesses. And I think actually the fact that we love some people so much, and we so mourn and grieve their loss, is that we begin to feel more and more how other people might feel in similar circumstances. If I look at a, a, a schoolyard full of 10-year-olds, I don't know them, but I do know how terrible their parents would feel if anything happened to any of them. That's a, that's, that's a vibe that I know. And I think that everybody here knows that vibe, whether or not they've been parents, because they've had people that they loved, that they lost. And to have that experience um, with people who are dear to us and close to us, I think is the stepping point to really people who we don't know personally. We don't have to know anything about them to know as a person. A friend of mine who retired after really 40-some years of being a flight attendant for United Airlines. I said once in a class, she was, she was in the class I was teaching, and I said, uh, you know, we, we sometimes, we, there are n neutral people. I, I said, the category of neutral people, people you don't have strong feelings about one way or another. And then I went on to say, ca quite casually, a line that I don't say anymore. She, I said, I don't think there are any neutral people because when I think of somebody, they're already not neutral. You know, if I, th I, I, I usually think about my dentist. So, I, you know, I, I don't have a big relationship with my dentist, but I don't feel neutral about him. I, I you know, if I didn't like him, I wouldn't go to that dentist. I mean, he's appealing enough. And if, if I didn't like, I mean, if I didn't like him, I wouldn't go. And I do like him, so I continue to go. So I said, I don't think there's such a thing as neutral people. And my friend Joe, who's been a flight attendant for so long, said, I think there are. I think She said, I think you're wrong. She said, when I stand in front of a plane full of 400 people and I say, fasten your seatbelts, 
I mean everybody should fasten. And I don't want anybody to fasten any more than I want other people to fasten. I want everybody to fasten just the same because I need everybody to get there safe. And I thought to myself, because I'd like to extrapolate the, 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 the image of a plane with 400 people getting from A to B with all the hazards that are incumbent from doing that, the same as all the people in the world getting from A to B. I'm going from New York to San Francisco, but we're all going from life until death. And that they should do it in a good health and not fall out of their seats would be good. So to have that feeling, may all beings everywhere put on their seatbelts. May all beings be well. May all beings not, you know, not suffer. So what else? We, we, we had just read the Metta Sutta together out loud, and I said, and took it back, I said, what's the most amazing line? Then I said, that's not fair, because I have an answer to it. Somebody's might be wrong. And I suggested that the most amazing line was omitting none. But then you suggested the most amazing line, so I will... I am going to say to you, I think that's also the most amazing line, to love like a parent would love a child. What's another amazing line? They're each of them amazing lines, so there you go. Tell me your name. Jeannie? Jean Lee. Jean Lee. Why, what comes in your mind when you say unburdened with duties? By the way, it's a beautiful line. Don't you love that? Anybody here thinks they are unburdened of duties? We all have. I'm sorry. Yes. And so there's a lot of beauty, and sometimes I feel burdened, and sometimes I don't. But I would like to feel just generally unburdened with you, because there are lots of people. Thank you very much for that, you know. I think, the, the, I'm sorry about your husband, Jean Lee. And I'm thinking also that you make the very important point that we all have duties, and we could all have duties. It's not like there's nothing that the desirable place is nothing that we we're supposed to do or responsible for, but to not feel them as duties, to not feel them as burdens, that would be a great thing. That would be a great thing. Someone told me a while ago that uh, in a particular case, like uh, it had come up that someone said, "I have to do this." I have to do, have to go someplace because I have to do so and so. And this other person said, uh, "Wouldn't it be better for you if you said uh, I need to leave because I have the opportunity of doing this and this, and that just uh, just by changing your the way your mind held it from I have to do it to I get to do this. I get to go to the motor vehicles this afternoon and renew my." <laughs> I mean, no, who, is, who likes to do that? But who likes to go to the dentist either? You know, there's a lot of things that we get to do. Yeah. Still, 
knowing all this, I don't have the interface that I think I'd like. Uh, can you make any suggestions? Tell me your name. Barry. First of all, I think it's, I, I, I really think it's wonderful that you've been practicing and studying for 12 years. I, I, you know, I actually think that, uh, that everything makes a difference. So I, I mean this quite sincerely. Over the course of the, however, 35, 40 years that I have been studying, I keep finding that the same thing, I hear a line that I've heard, I don't know how many times, and then I suddenly hear it and I say, ah, now I know what that means. And the thing is, I thought that already a lot of times. I hear something and say, ah, now I know what that, now I really know what that means. Now I really, really know what that means. So on the one hand, I did hear you say that I don't feel peace. So I want to relate to that as well. At the same time saying that I think that wisdom is cumulative and you don't always feel it. Suzuki Roshi, who was the founder of the Zen Center in San Francisco, used to say in San Francisco, there's a lot of fog. He said, you can walk around a lot without a raincoat because it's not actually raining. He said, you walk around a lot. He said, all of a sudden, you walk, 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 fog, 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 wet. So it's, I think the same, I, th I think, I think that, I think the same with listening to Dharma for a long time, that it seeps in like the fog and then suddenly wet. So I, I have a lot of hope. In the meantime, before, just when you ended what you said, you said, but I don't feel peace. And I was thinking, if we were meeting as we are, if we had met in a retreat, I would say, you know, I wonder what it would be for you if all of your meditation practice were just uh, uh, wishes of well-being for yourself, because your experience is I do that every day. okay. So, <laughs> so I'm going to suggest even when you do it, what happens? All right. Okay. <laughs> that uh, my body occasionally doesn't work well. Um, there's a great deal of fear that comes about for aging, sickness, and death. Mm -hmm. And if I can somehow get rid of that fear, I think uh, I would find a way to peace. peace. I think that having the fear not there would be peace. Actually, it, it wouldn't. It wouldn't be then. There would be a way to peace. That the absence of fear would probably be the presence of peace in the mind. That when you said I have a lot of fear, my guess is that the things that in, if exist in me as fear are there all the time. And sometimes I'm aware of them, and sometimes I'm not so aware of them. Here, I want. I want to make the question another way. Are there experiences when you're meditating or not in which you feel peaceful? Yes. Like, tell me an experience. That's, to do with That's fine. Um, I was told by a prominent yogi um, when he asked the class, What was your meditation experience about? 
I said, uh, I feel stillness, I felt stillness. He said, that's God. And I work hard at just feeling the stillness, being a witness to what I'm doing, an impartial observer. And there are moments where I'm at peace with myself. That's wonderful. What are you doing when that stillness happens? Just by accident, or what do you? you no, I make an effort at being a witness to what I'm, what I'm experiencing in the present moment. And there is that stillness. And I often, one of the things I say to myself is, uh, there's um, a Psalm 4610, uh, "Be still and know that I'm God." Mm -hmm. I, I think that's wonderful, Barry. I, I, you know, there's no, I, for myself, I would say to you, I don't see any reason why you make it, should make any other invocation, like may I be peaceful, or anything that's uh, ostensibly a meta-invocation. That's a meta-invocation. Be still, Barry, and feel the presence of the divine, or God, or however we want to say that makes you feel still and peaceful. And once you feel still and peaceful in those periods of time, if you're aware, wow, I feel still. I feel peaceful. I feel really peaceful. I'll breathe in the peacefulness. I'll extend the peacefulness all around me. I'll feel the peacefulness permeating my body. I actually think a lot about my metta practice being a way of reconditioning my neurology so that it actually responds another way and is more still, more peaceful, less reactive. You know, I hope, I mean, that, that it's a very small shift, but um, I, I, just as you were saying to me, I, I do feel stillness and comfortable. And uh, you know, certainly doesn't have to be. I don't think a Buddhist stillness is different from a Christian stillness. Is different from uh, a human stillness. Mind at peace is mind at peace. I was actually, uh, I remember, quite surprised early on in my practice. Or early on, maybe not so early, because it's been a long practice. Uh, because I began to practice in an era where I was very much uh, shaped and informed by the, the psychedelic generation that had come just before my interest in meditation. And I had, a, I had a view that somehow what I was hoping to have was astoundingly amazing states that were filled with bliss or light or bells or rapture. And in fact, sometimes that happens. But um, it's not actually what we are hopeful for, I think. What we're hopeful for is not only a kind of peace that's profoundly uh, uh, um, a relief and a liberation for our, this tired mind, but the kind of peace that is really uh, spacious enough to keep wisdom alive in it, so that when the peace is disturbed, the wisdom is able to activate itself and take care of restoring it. I was really surprised one day to be sitting on a retreat 
And uh, I'd felt at that point all kinds of experiences of bliss or excitement or thrill in my body. And I realized that what I felt was quite a profound sense of ease. And it wasn't at all special. I mean, I looked, I opened my eyes because I was hoping to see lights and, you know, halos on everything. And, uh, and I didn't. I just saw whatever was there. But the experience of mind at ease was so compelling to me. I thought, that's really what I want to have. I want to have a mind that's a mind at ease. Yes. So, um, who's the translator of this? Do you, do you know? I don't. Does Sharon? It's your copy. <laughs> Only because, you know, whoever translated it could be using different words. They could. Oh, it happens frequently. Yeah, it's the Amaravati Sangha. Yeah. That's fine, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm completely fine with that. I would translate it differently in three other places, you know. Why? What were you thinking about? Well, the question is: Don't you think that we make the the misassumption and and the effort towards always obtaining the end game, which any sentence in here really is descriptive of the the goal, and instead of embracing and making the effort towards being on the path and enriching and cultivating the resilience to remain on the path, rather than trying to get the end thing, the end product. Yeah, well, I actually, I find this, I find this a moment to moment. As I said a little bit before, that my own sense these days is very much of moment to moment practice. Not I'll get there someday and then my problems will be over. I don't think there's a there to get to. I think there's not a there to there to. This is it. This is it on the vine, over the cliff, with the water. And here and there is strawberry. I want to eat enough strawberries and keep my mind clear. And, uh, and I think it's moment to moment. Uh, and uh, maybe what you could say is linear, if there's such a thing as linear, but I'm not even sure, is um, I'd like to get better at making that effort, at recognizing the unwholesome states in the mind sooner and um, attenuating them with wholesome states, and the blessing, uh, putting in a blessing into the mind, blessing for myself or blessing for somebody else, attenuates the unwholesome. That's, uh, that's I think, the beginning, that's the end of it. In this moment, not at some other time. I can't do tomorrow's practice now. So, so okay, a couple of more, and then we'll sit a little bit. Oh, so with a boundless heart. That's it, anybody else? Huh? It's big. It's big. It, you know. Well, it has to hold it all. You know, I started by saying that Sharon has written a heart as wide as the world, because when you think about that, everything has to go in there. In Spirit Rock, we have a certain, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a tradition, but we have a, a way of being together. There's a Wednesday morning community that comes together. And um, over the years, what's developed is we come together and we say hello, as you did, to new people. And I give some meditation instructions and we sit together for 30 or 40 minutes quietly. And then uh, I ring a bell and then I teach. But in the last five minutes of the sitting together, it's become uh, our way for me to say, in five minutes or so, uh, I'm going to ring the bell. And uh, in these last five minutes, 
if it occurs to you to speak out loud the name the name of someone um, in your life about whom you're thinking a lot because these are special circumstances, uh, this might be a good time to do it. For instance, I'm thinking of my friend Adina, who has just this week had her first chemotherapy for breast cancer. And um, I'm thinking about my friend uh, uh, Jim, who has just fallen in love with a woman that he thinks is going to be the love of his life forever. And he's uh, in a whole new mood about it. So may they both thrive. I don't even say the thrive, because I'm going to say the thrive at the end. I just mention I have a friend with this and a friend with that. And then I just sit there, and I actually studiously don't look. And people speak out all over the room. And they say, I'm thinking about my husband who has had a, um, uh, a recurrence of his, uh, of his stomach cancer and there's not so many things that people can do about it. And someone will else say, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, my uh, 19-year-old son who's just come home from college because he's, uh, his depression is up again. And uh, for the most part, people say, something that's dire or difficult that's happening. And uh, the for people have caught on that a, a very useful formula is to say, I'm thinking about my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, my neighbor, because it's real. And mention their name or not, I'm thinking about my friend Jim, who's finally found the love of his life. Um, and then to say what it is that happened, found the love of his life, she has breast cancer, has broken his sobriety, has lost his job, has just uh, uh, broken his ankle skiing, has just gotten um, his acceptance to Harvard, Yale, and Amherst, and he can't figure out what one to go to. <laughs> and when someone does that and finally says something that's, amazingly to be desired, there's like a collective, ah, and the whole room, like finally something good happened. You know? <laughs> and it's not that good doesn't also happen in a world. I mean, the Buddha, the Buddha called it the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes. But it seems a lot of the times like the joys, okay, I had a joy, okay, another joy. But the woe, you really notice the woes that because they really grab your heart and you're frightened about them. You're not frightened about the joys. The person with the three acceptances is going to figure it out and none of them are going to be bad. So it's, it's, it's different. And that goes on by itself with people speaking all over the room and I don't know who. And often they say something that I never heard of that disease uh, or that particular configuration of difficulties and uh, I just sit, everybody just sits. And then at the end of the time, I say for all the people we've mentioned and all the people we thought about and didn't mention, may they be sustained through this period of time and may they have people who care about them and people who, people who love them, people who care for them. May we all have people who love us and people who care for us. May we all be sustained in meeting whatever the challenges in our life are. May all beings be peaceful and happy, and I ring the bell. And then I open my eyes, and honestly, I am 
more often than not, I'm actually quite speechless because the array of things that happen to people is stunning. Listen, I didn't even think of, I never heard of that disease or this or that or imagine or someone's two grandchildren were on a trip with their father and the car was hit by someone and they got killed. And You can't, I, I listen to this and I think the, the, the permutations and combinations of difficulty that body and spirit are heir to is endless. So that the idea that it's 10,000, it's a metaphor, of course, but it means a lot. It's hard, it's hard to imagine. The, the, and, and at the same time, if I open my eyes, I realize all those people in the room who've mentioned and who haven't mentioned are there. And we, each of us, are carrying around in our mind this one that's difficulty and that one that's difficulty that we care about. You know, we'll probably do it here together now that I've told you before we go home, make a collective prayer for everyone. But when I do that, I find that the effect of it when I'm finished for myself is that actually and metaphorically, my uh, my voice lowers, that the voices in my mind that are angry about something or annoyed about something or impatient about something or something about something, they, they mute and maybe they go off. I think to myself that when you start to see what really matters, and really, this is serious business, this life, and there are things that are really important. I just read a poem by Tony Hoagland in which he says, I hope I don't spend my life in a haze of trivial distractions. I hope I don't spend my life in a haze of trivial distractions. Because it's all trivial distractions, except who's alive and who's dead. And who's here that I love and care about and can somehow make their life different and not. And I think I, the other thing that always astounds me, well, I, I'm also always, um, well, I'm never quite speechless, it's not my way, but, uh, <laughs> but, I feel that whatever I have prepared as a Dharma talk that I'm going to, so to speak, give after we sit together is really quite trivial because I think the best Dharma talk is the one that happened in that five minutes. That life is very complicated and everything happens to everybody. And what are we going to do about that? Well, it's, there's, there's a coda to that. Life is very complicated. Everything happens to everybody. Human beings are incredibly uh, courageous because they keep rising to the occasion. As we get older, we realize, this is, hey, this is the truth about life. All these things happen, and I will be bereft of everybody that I love unless I leave first. And, I, and besides that, not just in the living and dying, seeing what's going on in the world. We've really stopped and, and, and paid attention, which is really what the point of contemplative practice is. Stop and clear the mind. Not so we'll have a clear mind. Ta-da, have a clear mind. But a, a clear mind so that we'll see what's going on in the world. Say, look what's happening. What are we doing? Suppose we really looked Suppose in the morning, instead of having tabloid mornings, we had, this is how many people 
this is how many children died yesterday of hunger and disease that didn't have to die. This is how many people are fighting each other in wars that are just motivated by capitalistic uh, intention. This is what's happening to the climate unless we get busy doing something about it right now. This is how our cities are going to look unless we change the way we live right away in a radical way, worldwide, not just me or us. Suppose it said that every morning and everybody stopped and listened. What were you going to say? Okay. You know, well, I wonder. One of the things I, you know, I wonder if that. I wonder. This is what comes to my mind. So this makes me hopeful. Um, at the end of well, what should I say? No, there's two things I can say. They both make me hopeful, and they both have to do with what you just said. And then we'll sit a little bit more because here, you know, I, I'm watching the time. And it's a day on metta, and we haven't done any metta meditation yet, so we have to do that. But two things come to my mind. One of the things is this, that uh, uh, I like to tell people that from time to time my husband says to me, so-so, you know, he's not a practitioner in the, in, in, I mean, he certainly supports all of the, he agrees with Dharma, but he's not the kind of person like myself who goes on a lot of retreats. He's just not a contemplative and uh, from time to time will say to me, so-so, uh, how have you changed in these 40 years of practice? Uh, you know, 40 years of practice. How have you changed in these 40 years of practice? It's just a conversation. You don't have to say something while you're eating breakfast. So. <laughs> how, have, how have you changed in these 40 years? So I say, and I say, and I mean it, I say, I've become kind. And he'll say, no, you've always been kind. And then I say, well, I've become kinder. And that's really true. And I'm kinder because my mind is clearer more of the time and I catch myself more of the time when my motives are ignoble, when I'm, when I'm not really coming from the best place because it hurts me when I'm not. And I think that's the result of practice. I think that's what we mean when we say the purification of the heart. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a... It just, it's just what happens. It's not otherworldly, it's just true. So I think I get kinder. And I think that's true of people in general, whether or not they came in interested in the, the difficulties in the world. Uh, when people leave retreats, especially they've been there a while, it's not unusual for someone to come the day before a retreat is over 
and say, you know, I'm going home tomorrow, but I'm, I'm really nervous about going back into the world because, uh, you know, I've, I feel so opened up since I'm here and I feel too vulnerable. And I, I like to say, and I try to say it in a way that's not casual, uh, that I actually don't think that such a thing is too vulnerable. I am actually waiting for the time that everybody becomes more vulnerable. If we were more vulnerable, we'd look around. If I, we're running out of time, so I won't read you, Pablo, Pablo Neruda. But if you have a chance, download a poem called Sitting Still or Keeping Quiet, Keeping Quiet by Pablo Neruda. The operative line in it is... Said if I counted, let's all go. Well, maybe I will read it. <laughs> Having said all that, wait, wait, wait. It's one of the ones that I carry with me. Where is it? Well, it's not in my hand, so that's okay. It should be in my hand. It should be in my hand. Here it is. So, Neruda. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still for once on the face of the earth. Let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total act inactivity. Life is what it's about. If we were not so single-minded, about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12, and you keep quiet and I will go. Perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves. I'm so taken by that line. And suddenly said, we looked around and said, what are we doing? Not only to these hurt hands, what are we doing to our relationships? What are we doing to the people we love? What are we doing to our intimates? What are we doing to the planet? What are we doing to the next generation? Or the generations after the generations that are coming up? What are we doing? I have tremendous hope in how much of the planet is under 25 years old. I have a feeling that at some point, some spirit is going to move through that young world that says, we don't want to continue this way. We need a world for us and our children. Let's stop. Let's put down all these weapons. Let's save the earth, let's save each other. Pictures of young people in, in, um, in Cairo texting each other 
I, I had the image, I had the thought, if they just texted, peace is possible. It could be different. Let's make a new world. Ready, set, go. Stop. And I'm hopeful that that's going to happen. So when people say, you know, I, I feel too vulnerable, I, I like to say I, I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I hope that we're practicing so that we become vulnerable enough to stop this and, and turn it around. I think that's what we're doing here. What? I, I absolutely, I think that's it. And I think it's a crucial thing. It may be, somebody said that to me the other day, don't we have that bred into us, our kin, these people look like me, these people sound, these are the people that I know, they're my, they're my kin. How are we going to make the whole world our kin? Unlearning the lesson that they're not, for one thing, which is probably... Uh, the 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 lesson that's been taught either uh, explicitly or implicitly forever for generations us and them, but maybe out of awareness somehow that we're all sharing the same the same ship, you know uh, Arthur Clarke, who wrote uh, two thousand and one, wrote Childhood's End. Did you read that? Childhood's end. In Childhood's end, everyone gets up in the morning, and in over all the major cities, capitals of the world—Washington and Moscow and London and Paris and Beijing and Tokyo—there's an enormous spaceship that's come in the night and is hovering over. And suddenly, nobody knows what's happening. And then the the unknown and what we have to be afraid of is not one of us, but one of some who knows what. And the, the sense that people would all of a sudden realize that we are one earth and one people on it and that we really need to communicate. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to seem um, naive in thinking that it's going to be easy. Because the world has continued on to you know, the the forces that that move the world, the forces of advertising, the forces of media, by and large reinforce the uh, the idea that us and them. So something has to happen to unreinforce it and change it the other way. And I th- I, I I have to think that the, it has to happen through education, through wisdom through learning, not through book learning, but, but through learning in, in, in some important, <coughs> radically new way that, that nothing is going to work <coughs> except inclusion. The... Um, <coughs>
maybe. <clears throat> the week after, um, the weekend after 9-11, um, I was listening to a, uh, a program, a panel of clergy, talking about what people might do in a time of crisis. And I remember that Alan Jones, who at the time was the dean of Grace Cathedral in San Francisco and has subsequently retired, who was very wonderful. Alan Jones says everybody should go to church this weekend, but not their own. (laughs) Somebody else's that uh, you haven't been to before where you don't know the people. Everybody should go to somebody else's church and be with them and pray for a world of peace. You know, now that I've used the word pray, I want to say something else about it because I really want us to do some formal loving-kindness meditation while we're together. Which really, I'm I'm fine with this not because we're going to do it anyway. But the, I I really wanted to make the point, and I think I have. It's not about saying phrases. It's being aware moment to moment of the wholesome or not wholesome condition of one's own mind and heart, and making a determination that is going to be that to remedy it if it's not wholesome for our well-being and the well-being of others in the most uh, intimate and small and personal ways and in the biggest ways of the world. But you know, when when people begin to do mindful uh, loving-kindness meditation in a formal way that uh, is often taught not just have a feeling of goodwill, which is another way that people practice, but say the say say phrases of goodwill. May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. Make it even less. May you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you live with ease. Those are very four easy phrases. Who could not... Those are words that our neurology understands. Sometimes people say, when you say, may you, and it's a prayer, who are you praying to? I'm not sure... Often we think that it's a prayer. A prayer means some intercessionary force. Some people like to think that, and that's fine. I think it's just a prayer of one's own heart. May it be so for you. I hope it's so for you. I really wish it's so for you. Because if we can, it's a prayer of blessing. And I I think I said it earlier, but I didn't say it exactly. Maybe I did. I, I, I think it's impossible to bless and have negativity in your mind at the same time. Genuinely bless. It's like driving your car in forward and reverse at the same time. It doesn't go. Yeah, the, the, either you bless or you bless, or you, or you don't. But it needs a whole heart. 
And that is a prayer. It's a prayer for the for other people. Many years ago, um, I was waiting for a time to tell this when Sharon would be in the room. I tell it a lot when she's not in the room, but now she's in the room. <laughs> she and I were sitting together in her living room in Barry, and I said, what do you think we're going to do when we're old women? And um, she said, I don't know, maybe we'll sit around and pray for people. And just in those words, which I really have treasured until now, because it has such a casual sound, you know. It's a different sentence than maybe we'll pray for people. We'll sit around and pray for people. (laughs) It means it'll be a way of life. We'll just hang out in the life, wishing well for people. That's a, I can't think of a better way to get old, you know, that, that you know, the, 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 I have been saying, and some of my friends, well, all of my friends, as we get older, we didn't talk so much about old age, sickness, and death, or we did, maybe we talked about it more when we were young, because it seemed like a very remote thing that only happened to some people, but not to us, but as we get older, and this is it. And we start to lose people, and we start to lose aspects of our own health. And if we don't lose the health, we lose some of the vitality. Because no matter how healthy we are, we're not what we were when we were 50. However much people say 70 is a new 50, it's just a new 70. It's not 50. (laughs) But to think, what are we going to do in this life so that so that we leave it, uh, we leave it gracefully. Someone, uh, uh, actually a friend of mine has just written a book called Stories About um, Instructions for Aging Gracefully. And it's actually quite a good book. But I think to myself, aging gracefully is a nice idea. So is parenting gracefully and partnering gracefully and working gracefully and being an adolescent gracefully. Gracefully is a good idea, whatever you are. And gracefully means filled with wisdom that things are the way they are because they couldn't be otherwise. This is what they are. That everything is transitory. It's all temporal. It's all happening. Whatever it is, if it's terrible, it won't be this terrible always. And if it's wonderful, it won't be either. So whichever way you can do it. And I have very simple mantras like, sweetheart, you can do it. Uh, sweetheart, it's okay. It's all right. This won't continue. It'll be different. It will be different. And if we, if I know that, and if I also remember that it couldn't, that my experience will be different, but what's happening ever is happening because of every single thing that ever happened. And every thought that I have, it shouldn't be this way, is is a is a is an ignorant thought. It actually means I wish it wasn't this way. But everything that's anyway is that way because of everything else that happened. So when, when it's, it's, um, it's sometimes seductive to get mad at the world because of the problems that are in the world. Look at what's going on. Shouldn't be happening. I wish it weren't happening. But it's happening because of what people did. So it could be different if people did things differently. And then it would be another way. 
And uh, my mind doesn't find itself in a position of making good guys and bad guys, in which case it ties itself in a knot and is uncomfortable. To be able to say, this is what's happening. This is what's happening and I'm, I'm happy about it. This is what's happening and I wish it weren't happening, but it is. So it's got to be what's happening. It, it makes everything much more, it makes everything more tolerable. It's just happening. It also takes out good guys and bad guys and victims and villains. It's so, well, Every time I think of that, I flash on my mother-in-law who would open the door of the apartment building and say, just my luck, it's raining. Like the whole cosmos <laughs> operated on her timetable. And it's raining on everybody and it's not raining everywhere, you know? It's it just, it's not, it's not, you know, I don't have to take it all so personally. That's it. And the reason that I suffer when I suffer is that I do take it personally. And then I take responsibility for it, or I don't take responsibility for it, or I can't forgive myself, or whatever it is. But if I remember it's happening, and I have two, I, I, have the, I only have one possibility in this moment. Either I accommodate to this moment. I'm not, I'm not I'm, I don't think I'm up to saying, Sometimes people say you have to embrace the moment. I don't, I don't actually know that I want to embrace. That doesn't sound so... I don't want to embrace it. It's just happening. And I don't want to... It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be... Um, no, it doesn't really make any sense to me to embrace things that are really things that I wish weren't happening. But to say, if I can accommodate it, say, this is happening... I like accommodate as a word. Commodious is a good word. It means spacious. It means you have room to move around. I'm even a little bit hesitating about saying befriend the moment. And friends you invite in to stay. I, I Accommodate is okay. You can be gracious about this. This is what's happening. I don't lose my discernment. I wish it were. I wish it would stay or I wish it would go. But here I am, and it's happening. And may I and all beings be peaceful and happy. Let's try. We have a very short time to sit together. I think what I'll choose for us to do, I had thought we would do the other experience of mentioning names, but we have a short time. What I'd like to do is just invite you to try. Maybe you have other metaphrases that you work with, in which case perhaps that's what you want to say to yourself. If you, even if you do, you might like to experiment with the simplest of phrases, may I feel safe, May I feel content. I like to say content because it means, okay, that's what's happening. doesn't mean I like it or I don't like it. Happy is a little bit, in English, happy is a peculiar word. Generally means pleased. 
But content means this is what's happening. Okay, what now? May I feel safe, may I feel content, may I feel strong, may I live with ease. Just try saying those four for yourself over and over, on the breath if you like, one breath each. If you want to, pause when you say whatever it is that you'd like to feel and see if you can actually feel it.
if we end our time together by just imagining that what we share with each other, whether we know each other or not, and what we share with all the other human beings in the world is that everyone wants to feel safe. Everyone wants to feel contented. Everyone wants to be able to feel strong enough to take care of themselves, take care of the people around them, to manage their lives. Everyone far and wide responds to sunrises and sunsets and new babies and deaths. when I know that my mind is thinking about people far and wide or close and dear with affection and consideration I rejoice in the fact that that liberates me from the suffering of being trapped in my own small self I feel part of a life, part of a family, a community, part of a world. Maybe we all feel part of a family and a community and a world. And as I learned yesterday that Anne Richards said, may we love them all as our lives depend on it, because they do. May what we do here together, studying and being together and supporting each other, so that we are more and more confirmed in the cultivation of a more and more loving heart, May that go with us. May that continue as we leave here and go into the rest of this day and the rest of our individual lives so that we continue to be a force for the good for ourselves and for all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.